Welcome to Sonic's Flight, the podcast devoted to all things Sonics. Sonic's Flight is a monthly podcast discussing current events, news, and topics of interest to the Sonics community. We aim to entertain and educate builders and pilots of Sonics aircraft designs, inspiring them to complete and operate their aircraft safely and efficiently. Welcome to the Sonics Flight Podcast. This is episode number 52, Rotax 912 Engine Installations. The Rotax 912 is a common engine choice for LSA and sport aircraft, but until just recently has been absent from the Sonics fleet. With Sonics aircraft now supporting that engine option, builders are increasingly flying behind Rotax power. We'll speak with one of the first Rotax Sonics pilots about his engine installation and offer some insight and advice to pilots wishing to choose that engine themselves. My name is Jeff Schultz, builder and pilot of Sonic 604 and Sonics 1374. Joining me again are my two good flying buddies, Gary Motley and John Gillis. Gary is a longtime pilot, a former CFI, and a multi-time airplane builder. Gary, how's it going? Well, I'm doing well, doing well. I'm not getting much flying in the last few days. As we probably discussed earlier, we've been kind of like a low IFR situation in here with the fog and drizzle and so forth, and I think it's going to stick that way through the weekend. But, you know, it's time for some maintenance anyway, so... I need to do engine oil and changes and oil analysis, you know, all the usual stuff that we like to tinker with with our planes. So things are going well. Yeah, I was out at the hangar over the weekend trying to work on uh, on my plane a little bit. Too cold, too snowy, too wet, all that stuff to fly. But I did a little bit of maintenance. And after an hour of the just those cold temperatures, my hands were frozen. They weren't moving so good. I finally decided I had to just kind of wrap it up. Yeah, I'm kind of doing the same thing. I'm just doing it in stages. One of the things I needed to do was to upload the new uh, database into my Dynon. And when I did that, I realized that I didn't even upload the last database because I hadn't been out at the plane in the last <laughs> month. That's a pretty sad story right there. That is that's pitiful, <laughs> very pitiful. I guess we're just going to have to repossess your Sonic since you can't fly. I'm going to try to make up for lost time as soon as the weather warms up. <laughs> All right, and... Also here, John Gillis. John is currently converting his Legacy YX to a new B-Model YX. And uh, the last time we heard, John, you had separated the fuselage and you were working on cleaning up the uh, the old parts, ready to graft them to the new parts. So how's that going? Well, it's actually going uh, really well. Um, my uh, stalling right now is a couple of back-ordered key parts from Sonix that they're... Uh, I don't know what <clears throat> what the holdup is, but uh, they're a supplier of some key milled spice, splice plates between the uh, aft fuselage and the forward fuselage are back-ordered. And uh, so I'm waiting for those. So I have moved my efforts towards uh, doing the surgery on the wings because uh, you have to change the wing skins and all of the uh, mount points and things for the for the the uh, the blocks that uh, you know for the the wing bolts. So that's going on this last weekend and this weekend. One wing is done. The next, the uh, left wing is this weekend. So you remove the old skins or you trim the old skins back? Trim them. You trim the old skins okay. back. All right. Yeah, I was just thinking that that, so, yeah, that yeah. sounds a whole lot easier than trying to remove skins and then install new ones. Well, they say you can go either way, but you're going to have to get new skins. So uh, trimming them isn't. Uh, it's a little. Uh, traumatic because you're actually cutting your skin close to the spar 
and uh, you got to be careful and you do it methodically with a monocle and um, make sure you don't scratch anything up. Hmm. Okay. So, um, assuming that you get your uh, your parts in, is there a whole lot of work left before you're ready to splice the new and the old fuselages back together, or is that a ways off still? No, it's uh, probably one weekend once I get the parts oh, wow. in, because everything else is done. Yeah. yeah, it's all fitting together really quite nicely. I give a lot of credit to Sonics. You know, my kit is over 10 years old, and all the new parts, even the match hole uh, of the new stuff matches up with the stuff from my old stuff. So um, a very impressive uh, upgrade kit. Yeah. Okay. Well, you can think about this as, you know, until we get to the end of the project. But um, it'd be interesting when you're all done to kind of look back and, and quantify the effort required and then sort of the, uh, you know, the, the payoff of going through that effort. Was it worth it? Would you do it again? Would you recommend somebody else do it? All that. So I know you can't answer that yet. No, I, I got to go through the pain of getting all the wired and, uh, uh, you know, flight tested and all of that again. So, yeah, it may not be worth it, but I'm having a good time because I'm building. Yeah, it. well, I mean, and that's that counts for a lot. It's like, uh, you know, you don't build airplanes to uh, necessarily have the cheapest airplane available. You do it because that's what you want to do. So uh-huh. it feeds the habit. Yeah. <laughs> all right. Our guest this episode is Gary Briggs from Auckland, New Zealand. Gary recently completed Sonic's 1531 and installed a Rotax 912S using a custom engine mount. But interestingly, and we'll talk about this, he fit it under the stock cowling. So it has a very traditional look to it. So, Gary, uh, first off, thanks for coming on the podcast. Well, thanks for having me. It's, uh, it's great to be with you guys. So you posted about your Rotex project over, uh, I guess, about the last, what, year, maybe two years on sonicsbuilders.net? Yes, yes. Um, well, probably, as you know, um, the Rotex probably wasn't my first choice. It was only um, by opportunity because I got the engine pretty cheap. But um, yeah, on the website and that, I'd always put as uh, as an AeroV, putting in the AeroV, and um, this Rotex just came along at a very good price. So that's probably what changed my mind. Yeah. Well, Gary, first of all, which, which Rotax version of the 912 are we talking about? It's the um, it's the ULS. Um, 100 horse, okay. The 100 horse, yeah. Yeah. And, Gary, I, I know that a lot of people have been following your posts on Sonic Spolders. There seems to be a, a lot of hunger for information and photos. And when you posted your photos of your engine mount, uh, I know there was a lot of people who um, were really inspired to uh, to use that as the basis for their own engine mounts. Yes, um, look, Sonics do uh, produce a mount for it now, but um, the mount that they produce, the engine fits further back with a, um, a spacer on the prop um, to try and get the engine into the cowl, because there's a few modifications, but I'll talk about that later, with the cowl. So um, I actually put um, my drive hubs probably almost in exactly the same place as what any of the other engines would be. Right, right. Okay. Well, good. Let's uh, let's jump right in. And to kick this off, Gary, why don't you just give us a, a little bit of background? Uh, just tell us a little bit about your your flying background, um, and then bring us up to the point where you said you got that good deal on that Rotax. Yeah, all right. Well, um, <clears throat> I've only been in New Zealand for eleven years. I was actually born in South Africa, and uh, you know, I spent most of my um, most of my life there. I worked for South African Airways as an engineer on the 
um, working on aeroplanes. And then um, I came to New Zealand because New Zealand was looking for engineers. So um, we all moved over here. And the good thing about New Zealand is um, you've got a lot of freedom to build aeroplanes. So um, yeah, probably um, my project that started about uh, seven years ago when I was um, – I was looking for something to build. I'd help friends build aeroplanes and that, and uh, it was time to build my own. So uh, I bought a set of plans from Sonics, and then I um, I wanted to um, buy the sub kits. So I, I started with a tail kit, but um, you know it gets quite expensive um, living so far away from the from the states with the shipping and that. So I actually built the tail kit, and then I decided to. Um, to scratch build the rest of the aeroplane. So uh, I brought in uh, sort of 12 or 13 sheets of aluminium. Um, as I couldn't I couldn't get a whole sheet here in New Zealand at that time, uh, and it was a bit expensive. So I brought in the whole, all the aluminium to, to finish the project. And, uh, yeah, I started building it. And um, probably in uh, 2014, I had no um, really plans of, uh, what sort of engine? I was I was more thinking of um, building my own VW and um, yeah, just trying to keep the costs down. Um, that was the biggest um, thing for me. And then uh, this engine came along. Um, it was uh, yeah, it was pretty cheap, but it had a few problems. It had a, um, a cracked crankcase, so I bought it and then and I put it uh, shelved it and uh, carried on with the build. And then probably about two years after that, I um, decided to pull the engine out because um, I actually found a new crankcase. What actually happened is um, the crankcase on that engine was cracked. Um, Rotex, um, they had a few um, issues with the older crankcases where they were fretting and cracking, and this is one, was one of them. So um, I found a new type of crankcase uh, overseas, which um, was pretty cheap. I paid $1,000 for it. If you um, buy a new crankcase from Rotax, it's about $6,000. So uh, I, I actually uh, rebuilt the motor into the new crankcase. And I was actually quite impressed because the engine, although it's got, it had 850 hours on it, it had no wear in it. Everything was still uh, um, within the new spec. So um, I marked everything up. And uh, the only thing I changed was an oil ring because I broke it. And... Uh, yeah, and the, and the gaskets, pretty much. That was it, and rebuilt the engine. And, uh, yeah, the rest is, is, is pretty much history. Yeah. Well, Gary, that, that's a good, kind of a good segue into, um, you know, why might someone consider putting a Rotax in their Sonics? And you touched on two things that I think are important. Uh, one, there are a lot of Rotax 912 engines out there. They use them in all kinds of things all over the world. And so... You know, we might complain about the costs of parts and new Rotax engines, but there's a lot of good serviceable used Rotaxes out there that you can find at a very reasonable price. Yes, I, I think so. You, <clears throat> I mean, they, ever since I've got this one, I've seen quite a few come up on eBay and, and locally here for fairly good prices. And, um, you know, also with the shipping from the States to here to, to bring in an Aero V will probably it costs uh, probably a, a good ten, eleven, twelve thousand dollars um, once you've landed yeah, and paid all the tax and everything on there, maybe even more. And um, you could probably pick up. I've seen um, Rotax here for about um, about twelve or thirteen thousand Kiwi dollars, which you're probably looking at about ten thousand US. 
for a half-life one. Mm-hmm. I think even the um, the 80 horsepower one would go well in the in the Sonics because um, you get two gear ratios for that. You get a so the, the 100 horses have got a 2.43, and then the um, 80 horses have a 2.43 gear ratio, and I think it's a 2.2. So you're spinning the with a 2.2, you're spinning the prop a little bit faster. Yeah. So everything um, <clears throat> that you measure is on engine RPM, um, which is uh, it goes through that gearbox. So Gary, the, the the second point that comes to mind is there is a, a long service history of Rotax 912s out in the fleet, and you can find, like you said, half life Rotaxes that. You still have a, a fairly high degree of confidence taking that Rotax and putting it in a new project and continuing to fly it. Uh, it has a track record. It has some appeal to a lot of people because in a lot of places, it really is the known quantity in light aircraft engines. Perhaps that's a little bit different in the U.S., uh, certainly in areas maybe um, it, it's more accepted than in others, but across the world... Rotax is available and people want them and they believe in them. And, you know, you put a half-life engine in yours, uh, that shows that you have a lot of confidence in the base design. Yeah, I've got, uh, I've got heaps of confidence, even now more so that I've done uh, about um, 40 or 50 hours behind it in my Sonics. Um, it's been, it's run flawlessly. The only problem I had with it, with it was um, the oil pressure was, um, <clears throat> I was getting spiking and, and um, that turned out to be the sensor, which I eventually moved. So the, the, the uh, VDO sensor was actually fitted straight onto the engine, onto the oil pump. And what I did is I just moved it with a, a flex line. I moved it um, where there's no vibration. And that's sort of all my oil pressure problems now. It's, it's stable as. And, um, <clears throat> you know, it's it hasn't missed a beat since I put it in there. Yeah. Our Jabaroos do the same thing. They slap a a oil pressure sensor threaded directly into the case. And those sensors only last for a few hundred hours before they wear out from vibration. Yeah. Well, this, that was a new sensor too. And it probably, it probably lasted about 10 hours if that. Yeah. And then it started giving trouble. Yeah. The last two engines I installed too, I used remote uh, oil pressure sensor as well for the same uh, vibration issues that you mentioned. Now, how did you do that, Gary? Did you just run a piece of braided flex line and then slap it on the firewall someplace, or what did you do? Yeah, well, yeah, yeah, so that's just, the simplest part, yeah. Just, just use a flex line or even just a solid uh, uh, rubber oil oil line will work as well. Okay. Gary, I, I guess I should have been more specific. Uh, Gary, <laughs> uh, Gary Motley, thank you. Uh, Gary B., <laughs> how did you do yours? Yeah, I did mine in the... Uh, the same. I went to one of the um, the local speed shops and got a. Um, it was probably like a uh, fourteen or fifteen inch um, high pressure brake line, and um, <clears throat> I just connected it to the engine, and then uh, I mounted the uh, oil pressure sender with a P clamp uh, where the oil tank r- right on the oil tank bracket, as the Rotax got a separate oil oh. tank. And um, the only problem with that is um, you've got to have a nice earth. So I. Uh, Made up an earth that fitted between the the oil pressure sender and the um, and the hose uh, bee nut, mm-hmm. which uh, clamps in between. Yeah, and yeah, it's stable oil pressure now. Yeah, hmm. and for our earth for us Americans means ground. Yeah, yeah, that's well, and video on some of their senders they ground to the case, and others they actually have a second ground terminal 
um, because of challenges like that. <laughs> yeah, even on the ROV that I did, too, I ran a separate ground, too, from the video case uh, to make sure it was well-grounded as well. Because I had to use some uh, sealing threads to keep the oil from leaking out around the BDO. So there was always some concern, too, that you lose uh, continuity there. So uh, I just attached a separate ground uh, strap to it. Hmm. All right, Gary. Um, let's talk about, before we get into the details of, of putting the engine in, uh, as you were planning this project, where did you go to kind of get your inspiration, your technical advice, help, manuals, all that kind of stuff, your your reference literature that you were going to use to undertake this installation? Well, um, Rotex Owner, um, there's a website called Rotex Owner, which um, it's, uh, <clears throat> I don't know who runs it, but I think it's partly run by Rotex, and it's got quite a few um, uh, Rotex gurus that are on the forum. And it's got all the um, the manuals on there, and pretty much what I use is the installation manual. Um, and you can download all those manuals from this website. There's um, uh, there's also um, overhaul. Uh, they've got an overhaul manual. The only thing is with the overhaul manual, it doesn't give um, splitting the crankcase. That's Rotex is uh, they uh, they keep that manual to themselves. But all the all the info on the torques for the crankcase is all in the parts catalog. So, I mean, it's a pretty similar insights to any other engine. But, um, yeah, the Rotex owner is probably the biggest uh, place where I've got a lot of information on. And then also um, YouTube has got um, uh, some videos. I don't know if, but if you're um, familiar with Edge Performance. There's a guy in uh, um, up in Europe that uh, put a Rotex in his Sonics and um, he's got a few videos on there with um, the modifications and um, um, pictures of his engine mount and, and, and the whole um, build process as he put the engine in and um, that, that I use quite a bit to, to have a look how to make the mount really. I would actually suggest a lot of people sign up for that Rotex owners uh, forum. I did that as well for about a year and a half or so. Uh, just to kind of monitor and see what's going on, see the support potential of service issues as I was trying to determine which engine I was going to use in my next, next project. So, you know, once you can get on there, it's a, it's a free site. So it does give you lots and lots of good information. Yeah. Gary, were there any specific, uh, threads that you found helpful? Maybe uh, engine installations on similar airplanes, Zenith or RV-12 or something like that. Was there something that you would would hold out and say this was a particularly useful reference? Yeah, I actually used, uh, I looked at the RV-12 the way, because their radiator, my radiator is mounted very similar to what the RV-12 is. As I've got a, a duct, my radiator is mounted at the, at the, sort of at the back of the cowl on the left-hand side, and I've ducted it from the, the left um, hole in, in the cheek for the on the Sonics cowl. Um, in, in the beginning, I had a, you know, I try to keep the cowl pretty standard, and uh, I didn't want anybody to see that it had been modified. So I kept the holes all the same. But I ended up um, making the hole in the one side bigger to get more air into the, the radiator because I was having a few little um, temperature issues with it in the beginning on the ground runs. So yep. That's it. Okay. If you have a link to that, uh, that thread, um, send it to me and I'll put it in the show notes. Otherwise, I'll just uh, direct people to Rotex owner and they can dig around in the forum. Yes, yes. 
Yeah, I, I, was, uh, I was just doing a lot of Google searching for um, there's a there's a few forums with RV12s too, and and um, they've got a lot of uh, pictures, you know, that build build forums for the RV12s, and I looked at that quite a bit, and um, mine my, my installation is probably a little bit similar to that where the radiator fits, and uh, yeah, okay, all right, it's running runs pretty well now. Yeah. Okay, well let's uh, let's go through the modifications that you did to um, to, to use the Rotax. But before we do that, uh, I, I do want to make the point that although you built your engine mount, and we'll talk about that here very next, you built your engine mount. Sonics does offer a standard Sonic supplied engine mount for both the B model Sonics YX and also Legacy. So they use a little bit different style of mount. They use a, a bed mount. And uh, it's a regular truss that attaches to these bed mount, those red aluminum arms. That's a little different than the ring mount style that, that you've done, uh, I believe. And so some of what you're going to talk about is not necessarily going to apply directly to the way Sonic supplies their mount. I'll just kind of caveat it up front with that. Yeah, look, um, yeah, I've used the ring mount. And, um, you know, when I started putting my engine in there, Sonics. Um, there was no support from uh, Sonics either. They hadn't uh, had the uh, Rotax on their books yet, so um, I couldn't even go there for support. <clears throat> so I started building my mount from uh, pretty much from the plans. So I'll go through the when I started building the mount. I, I built the part that holds the landing gear first. So mine's a um, tail dragon, and um, <clears throat> so I built that part, and then I built the part that. Um, fits to the ring mount and then what I did is I installed uh, the landing gear part on the airframe and then I made a wooden frame and fitted uh, <coughs> the actual ring the um, um, you, well I've used Lord mounts on mine with I used an old dynafocal um, ring mount or a, yeah dynafocal mount from a yeah I'm not sure what era like a, a Cherokee 140 um, somebody gave it to me, so I cut the rings off and I've, uh, I made up a uh, <clears throat> another mount that will fit onto the Rotex ring mount. And then what I did with that is um, I um, used the wooden frame and put it on the airframe where it's supposed to fit and then just started cutting and mitering tubes. And um, yeah, eventually uh, you, you got a mount that's pretty much in the right place and accurate. Um, but uh, there was a few modifications I had to do after that. Yeah, and, and that's a good point because uh, I'll put myself in this category. I, I would rather buy a product that's already been engineered and, and it's it's finish welded, it's perfect, all that. Um, that. That would be my preference. But sometimes if that's not available, you have to kind of default to these low-tech approaches where, you, like what you did, you do it in sections. You know exactly what the landing gear side of that mount needs to look like exactly like every other Sonics mount. And you know what the, the forward edge needs to look like to mate to your Rotex. All you had to do is figure out how to connect the two parts in the middle. So you build a simple wooden frame, and then you just figure it out one tube at a time. That's a valid approach, and you may have to just sort of commit to doing it that way. Yes, exactly. Um, I'll tell you that um, so the most a lot of the mount is um, from the Aero V, from the plans, and then... Um, yeah, the top half, you've got a um, Jabiru uh, 3300 in yours. And um, so I've used the top half is um, 
is, a, is similar to what the Jabiru is with it. It's got that piece of square uh, chromoly on the top with the two um, square tubes that mm-hmm. run off to hold the top of the mount. Um, so I changed mine to that because um, I'd done it almost like the Aerovi and like what um, I saw on uh, on uh, YouTube with uh, Edge Performance. But um, he's running a fuel injection system on his. And um, once I'd built the mount similar to his, I found out that it would interfere with the air filters on the carburetors for mine. So I had to rethink it. And then that's when I came up with the Jabiru, the top half of the Jabiru and, and the mounts, pretty much the top half of the Jabiru and the bottom half of an Aero-V and, and uh, part that fits onto the engine is, um, is Rotax. Yeah. Well, and, and that's, uh, that's a good point. The Aero-V style mount is a little bit spindly where it attaches to the back plate of the engine. And the Jabiru, because it has that rectangular steel tube, it's a very rigid, very stout uh, upper attach piece there. Yes, yes. That's, uh, <clears throat> yeah, that's why I went for it. It looks pretty strong. And uh, so far, in 40 or 50 hours, I pull the cowl off every couple of hours and have a good look at the mount on that. And... Uh, and I've done some really hard landings on with that thing. Uh, uh, when I was, I had to actually get a rating in it just after we test flew a few. That probably flown about ten hours test flying, and then I had to get a rating in it. And uh, I uh, scared myself and the instructor in it with quite a hard landing that we thought the gear will come off. But uh, it's all stayed together. Yeah, well, that, that's that's not a mistake. That's that's valuable research and development. So you do that on our behalf. Thank you. <laughs> well, Gary, you sound like a very industrious builder. I can see where your engineering background paid off in big benefits and dividends for you. Yes, yes. It's also a lot of um, yeah, fiddling. Um, you know, I've, uh, I've built a lot of models, and um, yeah, I've always been uh, one for making stuff. And uh, yeah, I've helped a lot of mates with their airplanes. So, um, and also through my years with, uh, with the airline industry. You know, it's uh, it's a lot of experience there, but that that shouldn't scare anybody away because um, there's actually another Rotax powered Sonics here in New Zealand with it's a Trigear one, which um, mine mine he's he's actually flew before mine, but it, it was was never documented, and um, yeah, he hasn't got as many hours as I've got on mine, but uh, yeah, he's a an IT engineer, so and he's he's done a damn good job of of his. Um, I mean, he had, he had, he spent a lot of money on it too. He had it all professionally welded and the mounts all being CAD drawn. So, and, um, yeah, he's, he's happy with that uh, installation too. Hmm. I would love to uh, talk to him sometime if you could forward me his contact info. Yeah, I'll do it. And he's on, um, the sonicsbuilders.net. Okay. Good. So, Gary, you mentioned already that you had to um, move the engine around because it's a, a, a relatively light engine. It's the lightest one that Sonics offers, uh, significantly lighter than the Jabiru and still quite a bit lighter than the Aero-V. So walk through how you assessed that and ultimately where did you place the engine in re- relation to some of the others? Well, um, my engine is probably also the biggest concern for me was um, also prop clearance. So what I've done is uh, I have raised the, um, the engine, actually, I've mounted a quarter of an inch higher and I've pushed it a quarter of an inch for, further forward just because it, it is a lighter engine, just to try and get the CG 
a little bit better. And also with my gear legs. So I didn't use the Sonics titanium gear legs. Um, I used um, Tracy O'Brien gear legs because he makes the whole thing with, with the axles and everything on. So I used those and I've pushed them down probably uh, three quarter of an inch to try and get uh, more uh, prop clearance. And also I'm using the bigger 500 by 5 tires. And um, my prop is 68 inches. And uh, yeah, we've got, it's probably not as much as I would like, but um, yeah, if the, if the airframe is um, up in a neutral position, say horizontal, probably got about eight inches of clearance. So what did that do? So you said you moved the engine a quarter inch, the, the prop flange, a quarter inch further forward. What did that do to your CG? Are you happy with it? Well, my, my airplane is still a little bit on the tail levy side. So my um, empty weight CG came out at 44 inches, which I've liked it to have been further back. But I can load it to full max gross weight and still be just in the tail, the, the back end of the, of the envelope. And, uh, yeah, I'm pretty happy with it, the way it flies now. If you were to do it again, would you recommend moving it even further forward, or do you think that is fine where you put it? Yeah, I think it's fine where I've got it. Um, when you start um, messing around with, um, with that, taking it uh, quite a bit further forward, you know, you're starting to change the whole design of the airplane, and um, it's, you become a test pilot again. So, yeah, I don't know. Um, I'd probably keep it where I am. Okay. Um, the big, biggest thing is to try and keep the tail end light. Yeah, and and if you run the the numbers on that, because the tail is so much further back than the engine is forward, every pound in the tail counts for six or seven pounds in the nose. So keep the tail light, and that'll go the longest way to keeping your CG in check. Yes, yes, pretty much that's it. And also, when I did the engine installation. I wasn't worried about uh, saving weight up the front, so I've got a, I've just got a lead acid battery in there. Um, I'm not interested in trying to get uh, save weight with the battery and using these lithium batteries or anything. I just, I put a bigger battery in if I want, if I could. But um, yeah, my the, the weight of my airplane is uh, six forty five pounds, so yeah, it came out fairly okay. Yeah, well, that's a good weight too. Okay. Um, anything else on the engine mount that you think um, is significant? Yeah, look, I used uh, the Lord um, mounts with the rings, but um, yeah, they they pretty pricey those mounts. So probably one hundred and twenty dollars each times four. Um, but uh, if you look on that installation manual for Rotex, they they um, they've got um, some just small mount rubbers that they use, and they're Ring diameters are a lot smaller. So, um, yeah, with those big ring, ring mounts, so they, they're from a Cessna 152 or something, the actual Lord rubber mounts that I've got in mind. Um, yeah, they're a little, their diameter's a little bit big. So they, um, um the one mount, um, sort of interferes with the, the one uh, air filter. So what I've done to is just bend the pleats a little bit open where, where, that um, where it was touching the mount, it doesn't touch anymore. So, um, yeah, if I'd changed, I would have probably gone for the, the smaller rings. But, you know, somebody had given me that uh, the old uh, dynafocal mount rings, and I just put them in there. Yeah. Well, if you've got it, you know, yeah, that's that's how you end up economizing your, your budget. Yes, yes. All right. So going to the cowling, um, 
so because you move the engine only a quarter inch forward, I wouldn't imagine that you you didn't run out of cowling to be able to kind of pull the cowling a little bit forward either. Is that is that the case? No, no. So um, all I really had to do with the cowling is um, so that the two front exhaust manifolds, I cut the they they were uh, interfering with the cow, so I just cut holes and. Um, yeah, those, those come through the front, and then I've made um, bulges. So the left side's got the oil filter and the um, and the exhaust manifold, which interferes. So I cut cut a hole and put a bulge there, and then the right-hand side is just the exhaust, which, because that cylinder's a little bit further forward, it, it protrudes through a bit more. So the biggest thing you'll probably notice on that, if you see pictures of mine, is the right-hand um, side of the engine on the cowl has got a, a fairly uh, big bulge there, which is covering one of the exhaust manifolds. But otherwise, um, my my original plan was I wanted to use a Jabiru cowl, which is a lot lot thinner in the front, which the Rotex would fit nicely in there. But uh, that's the one I actually ordered from Sonics, and they sent me the um, the universal one, which um, yeah, they they stopped making the Jabiru one. So they sent me the universal one, which maybe is a better thing to try and fit the radiator and everything in. But I think the Jabiru one would have looked a little bit nicer. Yeah, I'm not sure when they stopped selling anything but the universal. But uh, anymore, you know, that's all that's out there. Mine's a universal cowl, and and I know that um, everything after mine certainly was as well. It's interesting. I'd, I'd like to see kind of how it how the Rotax would sit underneath the B model cowl. I suspect that there is absolutely no challenges packaging that engine. That's a, a lot more room in that cowling. Yeah, I think um, the biggest thing is because uh, they've shifted the engine back a bit and then put a, I think there's probably a two or three inch space on the uh, flange for the prop. So you, you don't get the, the interfering with the exhaust manifolds. And then the, the cowl is probably, a, yeah, it's probably it's quite a bit wider um, at the back. So, There'd be heaps of space for radiators and things. Yeah. I guess I'm I'm not real clear on how are you routing air that you take in through your left and right inlets because some of that air needs to go over the cylinders and some of it needs to go to the radiator. How are you directing and ducting all that? Well, the, <clears throat> the radiator, I've built a duct that takes air from the left-hand side of the cow through the left-hand hole, um, which only goes to the radiator and then the right hand side is just free airflow so the rotex you don't have to um actually you don't have to vent those um the fins over the engine they, they just they just want a bit of a breeze or okay or moving air so there's enough that goes to the other side of the engine for those cylinders yes yes so the carb will suck from the right hand side and um yeah, those cylinders just get a little bit of uh, a breeze through there. That's all the Rotex recommend. And if you look at the um, RV, they used um, the RV12 used to have uh, they used to have a shroud that fitted over those, and they used to force air through there. And um, you've got to strip off the motor to get that shroud on. So um, Van stopped doing that and told and, and stopped producing that shroud, and reckoned the air that was in there is enough to. Um, to cool those cylinders, and uh, yeah, a lot of the, the newer ones are, are like it, and they don't have any problems. Hmm. Okay, and the the duct that you built that goes from the inlet to the radiator is that just a rectangular aluminum duct, or is it something more significant? 
No, I used uh, fiberglass. So I, what I did is uh, I used uh, polystyrene and I made a, pretty much the shape that I wanted with sanding and, and uh, yeah, uh, cutting and sanding and then just covered with uh, brown box tape and glass it up. And um, the actual frame that the radiator fits on is aluminium. So I just glassed this aluminium frame with the radiator bolts too. I just glassed it into the cowl with this um, with the polystyrene and then um, just took some acetone and uh, got rid of all the polystyrene. I ended up with a duct. So the duct is actually molded right to the cowling? It's not a freestanding duct? Uh, it's molded onto the cowl. Okay. Yeah. yeah. So the radiator fits on there too. Okay. And then uh, the radiator is attached, you said, to the back side over uh, on the pilot side. It's uh, Is it hung from the engine mount tubes or is it bolted to the firewall or how does that go? So that fits on the um, actual cowl itself onto the duct. I've got um, two Zuss fasteners and uh, a hinge pin which uh, holds the radiator in place. Okay. So if you take the cowling off, the radiator comes with it. Well, I, I just undo the Zuss fastener and the hinge pin, and then I take the cowl off, and the duct with the cowl comes away, and the radiator just hangs there free. I see. It's just hanging on its hoses. Yeah, okay, okay. And you haven't had any uh, vibration problems like that? No, no, I've had it off a few times, and there's no, I've had no, you see, there, there's not a lot of vibration on the cowl. I think it would be a different story if I mounted it to the engine, um, or on the engine mount, you'd probably get a little bit more vibration and so I haven't had any any problems there. And then, uh, Gary, you talked about your prop, and you said you're running a 68-inch prop? Yes, this um, prop comes... Um, so I got that off... Uh, it's a, a used prop off a Technum. Uh, I think it's a uh, Bravo... Not a Bravo, the 2006, a new, quite a new Technum. See, they all change in those uh, wooden uh, props to... Uh, they're putting constant speeds on. So I got the prop cheap, and I put it on the Sonics, and pretty much it's almost a, a perfect match for the Sonics. It could go maybe a little bit coarser on the pitch, uh, but um, it, it pulls it fine. Is that a three-blade three or a two-blade prop? It's a two-blade wooden wooden prop. Okay. And it's fixed pitch? Yeah, fixed pitch okay. wooden prop. Okay, so yeah, so that was sort of just sort of a, a happy coincidence that um, it just worked really, really nearly perfect, huh? Yes, yes. I was going to ask you, you know, how you went about, um, you know, specking that prop if you work with a manufacturer to cut one custom, but it sounds like you just, you know, got lucky. Yeah, I think we got lucky. Um, it could do with a little bit more pitch, but uh, I'm pretty happy with it now. Mm-hmm. What are you, what kind of speeds are you getting out of the plane and cruise with that prop? You know, in very nice still air, it can cruise. It cruises about 120, 125 knots. Yeah, that's got to be very still air though. So, um, you know, we don't mainly over the water where where I'm getting those speeds constantly. But if I'm, uh, you know, over over the land where it gets quite bumpy, so we're probably looking at 110, 115 there. And the cruise RPM on the Rotex, which is RPM, um, engine RPM is 5,200. What does that convert to your uh, prop RPM, do you think? I'll, uh, let me work it out. So um, the, the gear ratio is 2.43. That's a pretty wide or a pretty long prop to be swinging. That's kind of what I'm wondering. Is, are you anywhere near what our Jabiru spin, which is a lot faster? 
the uh, proper RPM works out to that those cruise um, um, cruise powers 2,140 uh, revs per minute on the prop itself at 5,200 on the engine. Yeah, that's a lot slower than a Jabiru at cruise. Yeah, yeah I don't got- think our Jabiru's could spin up a, a 68 inch prop that fast. Right. Yeah, we're we're running 64 inch props. Sonics has said in their literature that you could go to as big as a 64 inch. Uh, but 60 is the biggest, you know, that, that they use on everything else. So 68 is still quite a bit bigger than what Jabiru would recommend. Yeah. I think 64 inch on a standard Sonics is probably max, um, diameter for the, the actual ground clearance. Yeah. Yeah. And that's what was, they were basing that on is, is you're at your, what they consider their bare minimum ground clearance at 64 inches. Gary, do you happen to recall the um, the manufacturer or the the name of that prop? If somebody wanted to look it up, so that's a, that's an Italian prop. I think it's a it's a GT propeller. I can actually I can look it up, but I'm pretty sure it's a GT. It's an Italian uh, propeller. Actually, um, I went and uh, I found we got a local website here called Trade Me. It's like an eBay, but it's a local eBay, and uh, I found another one of those props. Um, for three hundred dollars, and I went and uh, flew down to Matamata, which is a probably a forty-minute flight. Went and picked it up and brought it back, and I've got a spare now, just in case. Oh yeah, that's good. Uh, the price is certainly right too. Yes, yes. Well, that was uh, the biggest thing. That, that I mean, um, there's a Rotex agent uh, um, here in New Zealand, and he's. Uh, He's been taking those props off those technums and and putting them on putting the constant speed the electronic constant speed props on there, and he says he's got um, a whole lot of them in a in a uh, storeroom that he can't uh, he can't actually give away. I wonder if he makes a uh, constant speed electric prop for a Jabiru. Yeah, I don't know. <laughs> a certain uh, fast YX uh, would be really tempting to put one of those on. Yes, yes. What do you think, John? Hey, I'm game. Let's go. <laughs> yeah. All right, Gary. Uh, let's talk about some of the other accessories. So we talked about the the radiator, but what else do you have to find a home for underneath the cowl with the 912? Yeah, so probably the biggest thing is the oil tank. So the oil tank is um, it holds uh, three liters or probably just over three quarts of of oil. So you can imagine it's a cylindrical thing. I'm sure you've all seen it before. So you've got to find a place for that. In the beginning, I, I put it on the left-hand side and, um, yeah, eventually I moved it to the right because the left-hand side, I had it too low. So it would have been hard to check the oil because, you know, every day you sort of, before you fly, you've got to go and check the oil and it's got its own, it's got a dipstick in there too. So I, I just moved it to the right-hand side and further up. Um, it, and it fits in that cowl quite easily between the engine and the cowl because there's so much space there. And did you attach it to the engine mount tubes or what would you do? Yeah, the rear of the engine mount tubes I've uh, attached it to. So there's no no um, actual engine vibration on it. So, yeah, and that's, uh, yeah, I just made a few brackets and welded uh, a few um, gears on the mount and, uh, yeah, I've attached it to the mount, the rear of the mount. Mm-hmm. Okay. And then what do you do for fuel pumps? Well, I've got uh, one uh, small electric fuel pump, which um, I've just attached to the, the battery box. So my battery is probably in the same place as what, what um, Sonic's on the plans. 
So I haven't changed that. And then I just put the, the, the fuel pump, I just made a bracket and put it onto that battery box. So that comes straight out of the gas collator. Uh, fuel comes out of the gas collator up to the fuel pump and then from the fuel pump to the carburetors. And it's just a single electric pump? Yes, yeah, a single electric pump. I think it's uh, like four or five PSI cause, uh, for the carburetors. Okay. I wasn't sure if the, you know, there was a, an electric backup to a mechanical or something like that. But yeah. So yeah, the Rotex has got a, a mechanical pump on the engine. So this one just feeds the, the mechanical pump. And I only really use it just before start. And then take off and landing, I uh, use electric pump. Okay. All right. And then you mentioned uh, the air filters are kind of on the back side of the engine where those uh, dynafocal rings are. Anything, any particular challenge? Did they interfere with the top of the cowling or anything like that? No, there's no interference. Only the one, um, the one because of the position of it, because um, the two right cylinders are further forward than the two left cylinders. So the left side, had, um, the, the two of the pleats on the air filter were interfering with the um, the ring of the. Um, of the Lord mount. So I just bent the pleats away and, and got uh, the clearance like that. So, yep. And I don't have any uh, carb heat. Rotex, um, you know, on the um, certified installations, they'll have carb heat. But, um, yeah, if you, if you look at all the um, light sport aircraft, most of them don't even have any carb heat. Um, it's the way that I think the way the carburetors are, they're not that susceptible to um, icing. But, um, you know, things can happen. Mm-hmm. But I haven't had any issues with it. And my undercal temperature there is, is fairly high. So um, on a day where the outside air temperature is about 20 degrees, <clears throat> the, the air that the carburetors are sucking are probably closer to 30 degrees centigrade. Yeah. We have kind of the same issue with the AeroV and the Jabru installations. It just sucks undercal air. And so you can think of it as full-time carp heat. Yes, Exactly. Gary, what about uh, the controls for the engine? Uh, do you have, I would assume you have choke cables that go to those carburetors, and then you have a, a pull cable that pulls against the spring inside those carburetors. How did you route all those and, and just tell, describe that? So, yeah, the, the throttle cable is, a, <clears throat> is just a split um, cable. I used, uh, um, <clears throat> what's that, they'd make, uh, I bought it from um, Aircroft Spruce. It's a... Uh, the vernier throttle cable for the Rotax has got the dual cable on there. So the one goes to the left carb and the other one goes to the right. Um, so that, that, that pretty much fits where Sonic's designer to fit. And, and I've just got to have penetrate the firewall in two places behind the carbs and then they run to the carbs. Another thing is a, um, is a, a choke for it. So it doesn't have a mixture control. It's got those constant velocity carburetors. So it, it uses a choke. Well, they don't really, it's not really a choke. They call it a starter carburetor. So that also, um, I've got a little, um, pull handle that I made up, um, which splits to two cables, which runs to the two, two, um, carburetors, starter carburetors on the carburetors. So those are the only two controls you really need. Okay. And so no particular problem routing those to the cockpit then. No, no, no. I found that the uh, firewall is fairly close to where the carbs are, so you've got to get it quite accurate to come through there because there's not a lot of um, um, space to try and uh, bend it if you're not that quite straight. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. 
All right. Uh, did we miss any of the major accessories that you got to package in there? Well, I suppose the oil, the um, oil cooler is um, standard Rotex oil cooler. Um, that I, in the beginning, I had that mounted behind the radiator, which uh, in some Rotex installations they have it like that. But um, I was getting quite high oil, oil temps on the ground runs. I think it would have sorted itself out in the air when you get the high airflow. But I wasn't going to take that chance, so I actually moved the, um, the oil cooler and I fitted it uh, underneath the engine, and it probably, from that point of view, it looks pretty much the same as uh, the standard uh, Sonics with an Aero-V or maybe even a Jabiru in there. It's just got the hole in the bottom of the cowl for the intake for the oil cooler. Mm, okay. Is that the oil tank, or is that the, is there a separate cooler? I'm... Um... There, there was a tank that you had to burp. Is that what we were talking about? Yeah, that was in the beginning. The oil tank, um, the three three quart tank. But no, the um, oil cooler is just a standard uh, air oil heat exchanger that fits. It's similar to all the others, and um, yeah, it's a Rotex one, which I've mounted underneath the engine. But the um, the oil tank is mounted on the right hand side of the engine, quite far back. Yeah, so so just like an AeroV, um, you have an, an inlet on the front of the cowling, kind of down low, and it just uh, pipes air into the oil cooler, and it just spills out down out the exits. Yes, yes, yes. Yeah. Okay. Probably another thing is the exhaust, because the Rotex, um, you, they they all have silences. I don't know if you've seen the silences on a Rotex, but that also um, you can run straight pipes, but um, with the high RPM on the Rotex, it gets pretty noisy. So when you're talking now. 5,500 RPM um, on takeoff um, as opposed to like the um, AeroVs and that, which is in the 3,000. I think it'd probably get quite noisy. So I put the uh, Rotax silencer in there, which, um, yeah, it's got it right at the back um, in between the mount. Um, <clears throat> and then uh, it probably, I had to cut the cowl open at the bottom and it probably stuck out the bottom about a quarter of an inch. So, um, I've just made it like an air dam at the bottom, um, which covers it up. So there's a little bit of a little bit of an issue there with a, with a clearance on the bottom. So, but um, otherwise it's okay. So I had to make an exit hole anyway in the cowl. So that's where the um, the exhaust, the bottom of the exhaust fits. Hmm. Okay. Okay. Well, good. Uh, yeah, that doesn't sound like any of that was really. Um uh, on unsolvable engineering packaging problem. No, no. No, it was, it was all doable. It took quite a bit of time to get it all sorted out, but it's all doable. Probably the hardest thing was uh, making the engine mount. Yeah. The rest of it was just finding a place to fit everything. Um, pretty much the firewall has got all of the same components pretty much in the same place as uh, what, the, the, um, what Sonic suggests. And um, I'm also using a um, an AeroV voltage regulator because the Rotex ones they don't like the heat and they start to uh, start to get problems with them. So yeah, I haven't had any problems with the voltage regulator, and it's a standard um, AeroV voltage regulator. Mm-hmm. So Gary, uh, one more time, just to run through your performance figures again. So I, I know you threw a couple of these out, but what I would really like to hear is. You know, what, what static RPM are you getting on, you know, on your takeoff roll? What rate of climb are you getting on your initial climb? 
Um, and then your cruise RPM speed. And if you have fuel flow, just give us an idea, of, you know, what kind of endurance you're going to get at cruise. Well, um, yeah, when we were doing the beginning, the testing in the beginning, we did a, um, a max uh, weight takeoff and climb. So we were doing, um, yeah, to get it to check all the temperatures in that. So we added it uh, max gross, which I'm using as 1150, the same as the Jabiru 3.3. So we were on that max weight, maybe a little bit over. And um, we climbed to 7,000 feet and we were averaging 1,000 feet a minute. And um, we um, had the speed pinned to 70 knots all the way up. Okay. Yeah, that's excellent. You know, with the low weights, you're looking at probably 1,600 feet a minute. Oh, yeah. Um, that's probably a, a big benefit, you know, with that large diameter prop. It really gives you a good uh, uphill pull. Yes, yes, it does. It, uh, yeah, it climbs. It, it doesn't, uh, doesn't worry about the extra weight when you're at uh, two big guys in there. It, um, the takeoff roll is still pretty short. I'm actually still trying to get the takeoffs. The landings are good, but the takeoffs could be better because it um, it gets off the ground before I can even get the tail in there. Yeah, and and that's why I, a lot of Jabiru pilots have the same issue. You know, the, there's so much power that you really kind of have to just roll the power in very slowly, and by the time you get to full power, you're up and climbing away anyway. Yes, yes, yeah. I get I find it gets off the ground too quickly, so it's it's probably getting off um, just above the stall, but then it just accelerates and climbs away. So um, what I've been doing is trying to feed the power in a bit slower and trying to get the tail up and probably getting it to about 40 knots before um, unsticking. Yeah. Well, John, uh, you can give Gary some advice on how to do a reduced power takeoff because that's what John always does when he's flying with us. Well, I have to, um, <laughs> you know, because my, my plane is so slow. That, uh, uh, I, I, I've learned that, especially I tow gliders, that you have to ease the power in slowly because everybody's got to come up to speed at the same speed. So, yeah, it's, it's something I've, I've just come accustomed to. <laughs> and then, uh, Gary, you were saying uh, crews of 5,200 RPM and 110 to 120 knots, depending on the, the, the particulars of the day. Yes, you know, with the, with the Sonics, they're pretty light aeroplanes, so any uh, change in pitch changes the speed so so much. But um, we're looking at um, – it always wants to be in the, the yellow arc, so it's cruising at always above 110, between 110 and 120, and, and I'm burning um, probably uh, four gallons an hour. Um, I don't have any um, fuel flow figures because I don't, I don't have a fuel flow meter on it. But, yeah, I'm getting an average of four gallons an hour at um, pretty much those cruise speeds. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and that's excellent, you know, fuel economy. Okay, well, uh, thinking to maintenance on the engine, um, are there any unique or particular maintenance things that people need to consider if they're going to go that route? Yeah, the Rotex um, is a little bit, um, it's a little bit more complicated than, uh, than the other engines. Um, <clears throat> you know, but it's all in the manuals. You know, one of the biggest things is, if you break open the oil system, like if you take a cool off or something, you've got to purge the oil system. So what that means is um, you've got to have um, uh, put uh, air pressure on the on the oil tank and the return line you've got to disconnect because the the um, it doesn't use a scavenge pump to get the oil back to the uh, the oil tank. It uses crankcase pressure, 
and that venting of the crankcase pushes the oil back to the oil tank. So what you do is you, you've got a, um, yeah, before your first start, if you've had the oil system open, you've got to um, purge the system with uh, air pressure on the, on the oil tank and then turn the prop over until you get a um, decent uh, bit of oil pressure. So you just turn it over by hand with the plugs out and um, yeah, then they purge it, get oil pressure and you, you get a, the um, oil, it's pushing the oil back out of the crankcase and you just drain it into a bucket. So, yeah, you do that. It's got the whole procedure in the Rotax manual. So that's probably the, the biggest thing. But once you've done that, um, if you do any oil changes or oil filters, you don't have to do it again. It's only if you really break into the oil system with a oil cooler and, and things like that. But um, maintenance-wise, I've only really done – I did a, uh, a filter change just before the first test flight because I did about 10 hours of ground running uh, to look for some – uh, you know, if there's any particles in there, you find a little bit of aluminium, which is pretty common on a motor that's been open and closed. And then um, probably about 15 hours after that, I did another, I did an oil change and cut the filter open and it came out clean. Um, I've got to do another oil change in the next um, the next 10 hours. So oil changes are, <laughs> if you're using Avgas, every uh, 50 hours, and if you're using um just MoGas, you can go to every 100 hours, which is a good thing on that. But I've been using – I use MoGas uh, most of the time. And then if we go like this trip down to the South Island, I have to use the Avgas. So um, I just keep my oil changes to every 50 hours. Um, and otherwise, it's pretty much similar to um, all guys with the plugs. Plugs are every 200 hours. And, um, yeah, it's got a little bit more on the clutch. So it's got a the gearbox um, – it's got a, a slipper clutch in there, and um, if you're using uh, um, Avgas with a low lead, then that clutch has got to be um, uh, stripped and clean every 600 hours. But if you only use MoGas, <clears throat> they reckon every 1,000 hours, which is a lot of flying power. Right. So that clutch is um, that's engine oil that's lubricating it? Yes, yes, and that's why the Rotex, they, they suggest you use their oil. Um, you can use motorcycle oils, um, uh, not, uh, synthetic car oil, which, um, <clears throat> it's got too many of these additives in and, um, they're scared that the clutch will eventually slip. It's there, so it's, it's there to, if you have a prop strike to protect the crank, because the crankshaft's all, um, pressed together with, um, it's got needle bearings and rollers, um, and it's all pressed together. So it can, if you do have a prop strike, it, the, the crank can twist. Uh, out of alignment. But there is an inspection for that too if you have a prop strike. Gary, are there any areas that now that you've been flying for a while that, you know, when it comes time to access a piece of the engine that you think, oh, geez, I, if I'd have known this when I was packaging everything, I would have changed this a little bit to make it easier to maintain. Anything come to mind like that? No, not really. I've got the cowl quite um, well done. I can get the cowl off in about five minutes and uh, get full access to the engine. Okay. But, um, yeah, there's nothing that um, I'm really worried about or anything. Um, you know, if I wanted to do something differently, I would have maybe moved the radiator or changed the radiator because I would have liked to have kept the stock standard um, uh, intakes for the on the Sonics. So keep everybody guessing on what type of engine has got in there. Um, I don't like to give it away that there's a radiator behind there. So... 
Mm-hmm. Yeah, I don't know. Maybe I would have uh, changed that a bit. But anyway, I'm having too much fun flying it anyway. Yeah. And then uh, you said you checked the oil tank before each flight. Do you have an, an access door for that, or do you pop the cowl and, and do it that way? No, I've, been, I've just got the one access door for that. It's on the top of that cowl, just above the oil tank. And that's just got a, it's just got a latch and a hinge, uh, very similar to what the oil, uh, the fuel cap's got. And, uh, yeah, the engine, um, you got to burp that engine. So, uh, to try and get, um, so once the engine's shut down, there's a, there's all the residual oil in the crankcase runs to the back of the crankcase and then, uh, it just collects in the back. So, um, if you pull the, the dipstick, it'll be probably <clears throat> half a quart down. And if you, you, what you do is you pull the prop through a couple of uh, revolutions until you, you can hear with the oil cap off, you can hear the actual engine burp through the oil tank is now it's pushing the air into the oil tank. And then you know that the oil tank's at its max level. Okay. And so putting an access door above the tank wasn't any problem then? No, no. It's pretty much similar to what you guys have um, above your, where you check your oil and that. Mm-hmm. Okay. Uh, anything else uh, maintenance-wise that, that people ought to consider or maybe plan for in advance, or is it pretty simple? No, I think it's pretty simple. Look, I, it's still early days. I've only got uh, um, just under 50 hours on the airplane, but um, yeah, um, I don't have a lot of uh, engine monitoring stuff. i just got a simple um, uh, MGL E1, one of the old ones. So I'm all I'm measuring is... Uh, the two cylinder head temperatures and uh, oil pressure, oil temp, and RPM. And, uh, yeah, I don't have any of the other – I don't manifold pressure or anything. So, uh, yeah, it's still, it's still early days there. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Well, I mean, that's that's a good report, though, that um, you're not finding anything maintenance-wise to be overly challenging and you didn't really have a lot of packaging problems, you said uh, – and uh, and maintaining it is is going simple, and that's kind of what you want. So that's that's good to hear. Yeah, I think it, um, the engine's going to be reliable. Um, I mean, I haven't had any issues. I had a small oil leak which came from the oil cooler, which I've sorted out now. But uh, that's that's the only real issues I've had with the with that. Uh, but otherwise, yeah, the little oil leak and the the oil pressure sender was pretty much it, and I haven't uh, really had to touch anything. Also, the, I've um, put, um, you know, that uh, heat bandage on the exhaust, and uh, that, that was coming loose, but that would happen with anything. Mm-hmm. Maybe the Rotex, maybe a little bit more often because of the higher RPM that the engine runs at. <clears throat> so, yeah, but otherwise it's all the usual stuff. Yeah. John, you've got time flying behind a Gobosh with the Rotex. So what was your impression of flying behind it? Oh, it was... Uh... It was fine. Um, it, it felt like, uh, I mean, the engine is so well engineered that it felt like flying behind a, uh, a sewing machine is what I kind of compare it to. Um, the higher RPMs is a little, little bit different than what you normally fly with an ROV or a Jabiru, but, um, no, it's, I, I have no issue with flying behind a Rotax. Is it the type of thing that, um, I don't know, that would appeal to you in, in perhaps a future project, or, or are you planning and happy to stick with your job? You know, the, the biggest thing to me would be the sound of the engine. I think the Jabiru sounds throatier and uh, 
um, you know, more airplane sound, whereas the, the Rotec sounds more of a machine kind of a, uh, not necessarily a motorcycle, but a, it, it's a higher pitch or a faster or sound. It, and it's just about feel. Um, I, I think the engines are great, personally. Yeah, I, I've had the kind of the same impression. I, I I like Rotex just fine. You know, they have a lot going for them. But everywhere I go, people come up and say, "Oh man, that Jabiru sounds great!" And you're like a little mini Merlin flying overhead, and uh, and and that's pretty satisfying, also. All right, well, uh, Gary, as we kind of wrap this up, if you could boil this down into a handful of takeaways, lessons learned, advice to others. How would you summarize and, and uh, offer this advice up? Well, I think um, the Rotex is probably, yeah, I, I, I'm, I'm very happy with it. Um, you know, it was, my choice wasn't, um, wouldn't have been Rotex in the beginning because of its cost, but um, if I'd have put a new one in there, but I'm pretty happy with it. There's no, nothing I really would do differently, maybe a few little odds and ends, but, um, yeah, the engine runs well. Um, that noise, that machine noise that you talk about is, it's really only on the ground if you see one flying over. But when you fly behind it, it's not a hell of a lot different to any of the others. Um, I think you get with the Sonics, you're getting a lot more air noise. So, um, yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm ecstatic with the engine. I'm just uh, happy that I'm flying. Yeah. Oh, good, good. Gary, what do you think? Uh, if you were to place this in the hierarchy of desirable Sonics engine options, what's your thought on where does the Rotex belong? Yeah, I don't know. Um, I also like the, the Jabiru, um, that 3.3 that you've got in yours. I think that's a, um, a nice engine. And, and, you know, the support, you know, I could uh, actually just go on the plan, make a mount, and fit that one. That That, that would be... Yeah, if, if, probably if if uh, Sonics would um, um, support it a lot more, I think um, I think it might even be on the top, especially with the European guys. I think they're more interested in the, the Rotex. But yeah, yeah, I think uh, it'll be up there. Well, I I think if Sonics had uh, adopted the Rotex a lot earlier, I think they would have a bigger bite in the LSA market. Yeah, John, I I completely agree. Yeah, I think they they should have done it a lot earlier and uh, got that in. But yeah, I still think they're dragging the heels because um, when I was um, they had bought the <clears throat> they had the prop um, that they got out for, and I asked them, uh, I emailed them a few questions on the prop, and they they didn't really tell me much. Um, yeah, because I wanted to know what sort of what they would suggest was the max um, prop diameter for the ground clearance and. Um, they weren't too keen to say it was 64 inches, but um, that's the prop that they were that they are um, selling for the Rotax. And uh, yeah, so <clears throat> yeah, I've got 68 inches, and I think it's uh, probably a little bit a um, little bit long. I think 66 would be good for mine. Mine, if I had 66, um, with the extra ground clearance that I've built into it, that would that would be a that would be a bargain. But, um, yeah, you just got to be careful with it and, um, yeah, try not to do high wheelers. Right, right. Uh, Gary Motley, so you have flown behind a whole number of engines, you know, 
a, a wide variety. And what are your thoughts? How does the Rotax fit into the spectrum here for Sonics? Um, I think it's, I think it could be a really good choice. You know, I was particularly impressed. You know, when you start putting those large diameter props on those geared engines, uh, I expected him to have pretty phenomenal climb rates, and he, he expressed the same. As well as he's still getting a fairly respectable uh, cruise speed as well, too. So, yeah, the, the Rotax engines with those geared boxes you know, certainly have a, have a good potential in there. Um, you know, as I, as I do, you know, more of the, the, the Fade Act engines now that you know that I put in my latest project, I gotta say though, uh, I've got, I'm really, really liking the thought of not having to deal with carburetors at all going to direct fuel injection and just making things really dirt simple. But, uh, I think Rotax is certainly a step in the right direction though. Yeah, and you know, Rotex has its own, I don't want to call them issues, but it has its own unique requirements. You know, there are components that Rotex that, you know, you have to service. You can have ignition modules that go bad and they're eight, nine hundred dollars a piece. Not that it happens often, but it does happen from time to time. You have the clutch service requirements if you run leaded fuel. Uh, you have other things like that. You have carb synchronization every so often. It's not that much different than other engines. It's just a little bit different when you compare Rotax to another brand. The the steps are a little different. Well, as I mentioned before, I mean, uh, that Rotax owner's form is really a good thing to sign up for if you're even thinking about an engine. Um, you know, I try to monitor the forum engines for, for quite a few mm-hmm. engines for, uh, well before I had actually purchased an engine. Um, and, and that's the thing I did notice, too, about the Rotax. They are certainly the gorilla in the light sport uh, aircraft market uh, worldwide for experimental aircraft. Um, they're very conscientious. Um, the thing is, you saw, you know, I, I know the other Gary will agree with this too, you get a lot of service bulletins on these engines because they are watching them so closely. Uh, it's kind of good and bad. I mean, it's, it's nice that they're really watching them, but sometimes you think, gosh, this is just one more thing that i got to go back and check too. Uh, sometimes you almost think ignorance is bliss. I don't know how the other Gary feels about it, but yeah, there there is quite a bit of service uh, maintenance requirements with the Rotex. I noticed versus some of our other uh, more simplistic engines that are uh, just air cooled, direct driv, direct driven. Yeah, the Rotex. Yeah, they probably got a they got a lot of uh, service bulletins and ads and things like that. But um, you know, once you filter through them, um, it's not that bad. Um, you know, you just got to know when your engine was produced and what parts you're running on it. And, um, like they've had a lot of issues with those floats. And, um, yeah, it's a certain, certain years that those floats have been a problem with the manufacturers and that. And then, uh, yeah, once you filter through all that stuff, it, it's not that bad, but it look, there is quite a lot to go through. Yeah, it just sometimes feels a little overwhelming, but you're probably right. You know, and much of that stuff is not necessarily fleet wide. Well, Gary, your comment about um, going to FADEC engines being, you know, the way to go, uh, I, I think you're absolutely right. And I think now that Rotex has their 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 912 the IS, version. yeah, yes. all the light sport guys are going to that because it's just so much easier for the end user. And I, it will take time to filter down to the more, you know, budget-minded sectors. But eventually, that's what everybody is going to want. Now, that might be an opportunity to pick up a, a midlife you know, 912S at a good price. But, um, yeah, that's that's the direction that we seem to be heading in, more automation and, and less workload for the pilot. And uh, I kind of like that too, so. 
Yeah, I've got about 200 hours now on my FADEC engine, and I just, I'm just astounded how simplistic it is. And that's the goal, is that you just, you don't know how it works or why it works, it just works. Yeah, it does. Well, as I kind of think about, you know, my conclusion, I, I do think the Rotax is a great option. There are some people that are just not Rotax fans. You're not going to convince them. They don't like it. They don't, they don't like the high revving. They don't like the sound. They don't like the high parts cost, whatever. Uh, that's fine. You know, everybody has their own way of sizing it up. But I do think that the Rotax 912 is a great match for the airplane. It clearly performs very well. Excellent climb. You may want to go through, you know, some some optimization if you're going to do a Rotax, such as bigger tires, a little bit longer gear legs, maybe uh, slight adjustments to where you place the engine so your CG works out. All that stuff is just something to think about. But I think at the end of the day, you're going to have a lightweight airplane that gives you excellent performance, gives you good fuel economy, and uh, is going to be fairly trouble-free. I mean, it's got a lot of history and, and years of refinement behind it. So I do think that that's a valuable way to go. I like the way that Gary put those Tundra tires on his as I did mine, those 5x5 five five tires. I actually really enjoyed them on the Sonics. Yeah, and I, I'm using the same tires on mine, and uh, I wouldn't really go back to the smaller tires. I, I do really like the larger ones. Yeah, well, I've had those tires on since I started flying it. So, um, yeah, I wouldn't know what this, the smaller ones are like anyway. So, but, um, you know, it handles all the, I've been in a few rough, fairly rough fields and that. And, uh, I've got the bigger tail wheel on. So I've got a, I've got a, uh, five inch or six inch tail wheel. So, yeah, I've been in a few rough strips and, uh, it handles it pretty well. Yeah. I wouldn't think you'd have any trouble at all with that. And I think you mentioned you had about eight inches of prop clearance, if I remember hearing you correctly. And I, I believe that's what the FAA recommends as well. Yeah, I think the FAA recommend nine inches. But um, yeah, the eight inches is when the, when the airplane is horizontal. So, But it, it doesn't actually fly horizontal like this. It always flies with a bit of nose up. Yeah. Well, I think Sonics would do well to really embrace the 912. You know, the 912 is the the dominant engine in the light sport market all over the world. And so you have markets in places like Europe and South Africa and, um, and South America that that's all they want to fly. They're, they're not particularly interested in importing AeroVs or Jabiru's. You know, there'll, there'll be onesies and twosies, but they want 912s. And Sonics, I think, would do really, really well to embrace that build a B-model Tri-Gear factory demonstrator, slap a 912 in it, and really, you know, go after those overseas markets. That's what they want anyway. So I think it's time. All right, guys, did we miss anything, or does that pretty much wrap this topic up? No, I think Gary did a great job on presentation. Yeah, I can't think of anything on fan. Yeah, well, good deal. Uh, Gary, thanks a lot again. Um, if you have... Any photos that you think are particularly useful that you want to send up, I'll put them in the show notes. Uh, and I would just personally like to see them also. I'm intrigued by your cowling, how you molded that duct in. That's a really clever idea, and I'd like to get a better look. I have a, a mind's eye image, but I'd like to maybe see a photo or two. So if you have something and you wouldn't mind sharing a handful of photos, I'd love to see them. Yeah, I'll, uh, I'll email you a few pictures. Okay, sounds great. Yeah. All right. Well, as we wrap this up, uh, I, just one quick thing to, to throw out. We, we've been talking amongst ourselves 
about maybe doing up some uh, Sonics Flights t-shirts. You know, mostly just for the for us to wear around at Oshkosh or whatever, just just for, you know, grins. But it's one of these things where having custom t-shirts made up, um, you know, there's a price premium when you only order a handful. So if anybody else is interested and wants to, you know, get a shirt or something like that, um, send me an email, send it to the feedback at sonicsflight.com email address. Just let us know. And um, we'll see about maybe uh, ordering a few extras and maybe bring the price down a buck or two a shirt. It's not going to be cheap no matter what we do, but it might be kind of fun to have some Sonic Flight shirts. So if you're interested, send us an email. Our next episode coming up quick is our Garmin G3X episode. We're going to talk to the experimental and home-built sales manager for the G3X line. And he's going to tell us all about the architecture, the options, and really how you would assemble a G3X to fit in a Sonics and what options you, you would really kind of want in that type of application. So that ought to be really interesting. I know that Dynon has, uh, has done just excellent with their Skyview and, um, Garmin with the G3X was just a step or two behind him, but now that it's out and it's it's in circulation, uh, it's a wonderful option too, and so I'm really looking forward to hearing more about it. You can visit us on the web at www.sonicsflight.com. You can find the show notes at sonicsflight.com slash 52. And then, of course, uh, subscribe to the podcast using your favorite podcast app or iTunes, Google Play, Stitcher, all those podcast apps that you, that you might use. So with that, uh, Gary, thanks again and uh, happy flying in New Zealand. Uh, I, I know that, you know, John, uh, he, he's been talking about it ever since he was down there. I would love to get down and, and come visit you sometime in New Zealand. Hopefully, you know, sometime in the near future, I can make that happen. Thanks again. Hey, thanks very much for having me, and um, you're wel- very welcome. Uh, we'll make a plan if you come down. Yeah, we'll uh, put something on. Yeah, sounds great. John, Gary, uh, good to talk to you guys again. Hopefully, uh, your weather is going to be better than my weather. We're looking at single digits again uh, this weekend, so I don't think I'll be flying for yet another week. Yeah, I think our weekend's going to tank as well. Yeah, we're not. Glider Club is down for the probably the rest of the month. Yeah. Which is this weekend. Yeah. <laughs> right. All right, guys. Good to talk to you again. Gary, once again, thanks a lot. And uh, we'll talk to you all soon. Adios, guys. Thanks. Have a good evening. Cheers. Bye. The views and opinions expressed on the Sonic Slight podcast are those of the hosts and guests alone and do not necessarily reflect the views of any individual, company, or organization mentioned on this program. Nothing presented on this podcast should be construed to be the official position or recommendation of anyone not directly associated with Sonic's Flight. Anything that sounds like advice should be carefully considered before being implemented. Remember, you are the pilot in command.